video is so powerful and did you know that all these videos you see this one all of them are created in-house by our team that is so incredibly talented our communications team so grateful for our guys we're in a series on marriage about uh, entitled uh, re-engage keys to having a better marriage and we really had some goals as we started this series. And one of them is for marriages that are doing well to encourage you and say, keep going. There, there is an end zone and we want you to keep moving forward as a couple. But the second one is for marriages that are struggling, wanting to give a sense of hope, wanting to give a sense of direction uh, of moving toward a better marriage. And then for those who are not yet married, saying, hey, before you get married, understand, there's a lot of work to do. It's hard to be married, but it's worth it. Marriage is the greatest of the greatest. It's worth it. You're gonna have to work hard. You're gonna have some high times, some low times, but it is worth being married to that person you're married to. And we encourage you with that. So with all of that, we've reached now the last of the messages, and I'm going to talk to you about how to improve your marriage. From everything we've said, how to make your marriage better. I want to welcome all of you today that are with us uh, at each one of our campuses, at the Missouri City campus, Rich Rosenberg campus, and all of you that are online. We're so grateful that you are a part of this service, and we welcome you to Sugar Creek today. And this morning, I want us to talk about how to make our marriage better. And guys, I really want to get your attention for a minute. I'm going to ask all the men, listen to me for just a moment. Valentine's Day is Wednesday. It's time to get something done, okay? I'm just saying it's in three days. So how is it that uh, we improve our marriage? How do we get this done? Well, I've got some suggestions that I want to make to you. And the first one is simply this. Develop an attitude that your marriage will last. I'm asking for a change in attitude. 
from a negative attitude to a positive attitude. The Bible talks a great deal about attitude. You'll find it throughout scripture. And every single time it talks about attitude, it tells us that attitude is an act of our will. We decide our attitude. We have control over our attitude. A negative attitude and a positive attitude, both sides require faith. A negative attitude has faith that we will not get better. A positive attitude has faith that God will see us through. Meaning both attitudes require faith, but they end up in very different places. And I'm asking you to open your heart to a new attitude, believing God will actually change for good your marriage. I'm asking you to have a positive attitude about your marriage. Last week, we talked about the five stages of marriage and that the third stage is misery. But here's the good news. The third stage, misery, is not the last stage. It's the stage where the divorces happen but it doesn't have to be the last stage. There's two more stages, the stage of awakening, the stage of mature love. And when you see these couples who've been married forever and they love each other, they got to mature love and you can too. You can too. So how do you change your attitude and move to mature love in your marriage. Well, the, the first thing I want to say to you is that you, you've got to focus then on the next stage, the stage of awakening. Right now, you're focused on misery. But I'm asking you to refocus on awakening. God, I want that next step of marriage. And I want it with this person that I'm married to. And I'm asking you to help us get to awakening. And I'm willing to go there. This is when you realize you can't change your mate, but you can change yourself. Healing begins to happen when you choose to truly appreciate the strengths of each other. And when you choose to accept each other's personality and opinions, that's when it begins to change for you. You stop trying to change or control the other. Now, I'm not talking about sinful activity. I'm not talking about adultery. I'm not talking about control freaks. There are many marriages and you've got somebody who is so dominating and so controlling. And I'm telling you, that's just as sinful. There is no way you can have a great marriage when someone just dominates and has to have their way all the time. That's got to stop. It's sin. It's a wrong approach to marriage. It's coming to the place to say, I accept you for who you are, your strengths and weaknesses, your personality, your opinions. I love you. I'm different than you. I accept that. And I value who you are, who God wired you to be. Last week, I shared a study that Linda Waite did, who's a sociologist at the University of Chicago, and she, she studied 10,000 couples. And you may remember what we talked about. She said 
that when she did the survey of these 10,000 couples, that a group of those couples said that I would categorize my marriage as life in hell, which isn't good. And she took that group of people and she studied them. And for the next five years, she was amazed. How many of those that stuck with the marriage and in, within five years, they recategorized their marriage to happy? She was amazed by that. What was the difference? What happened? I know what happened. They came to the stage of awakening. They finally moved to the next stage of I accept you. Instead of rejecting you, I accept you. They described it to her as she said, just putting one foot in front of the other and going to the next day and just keep going. But an amazing thing began to happen. I began to accept her. She began to accept me. And all of that began to change the marriage. What I'm asking is the first thing in the whole attitude change is I'm going to put my focus not on the misery that I'm feeling, but on the stage of awakening. And I'm asking God to open up that stage. Here's the second thing. Keep growing. You didn't marry the wrong person. You married the right person. And you are the right person that, that your spouse married. And God is at work in your life and work at work in your spouse's life. It's not over yet. You haven't learned and grown and changed all the ways you're going to. God is still at work in your life. Listen to what he says in, in Philippians chapter one, verse six. And I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. What is that day? Either Jesus comes back or you die and go to be with him. But as long as you're still breathing, God is still working and changing your life. And by the way, it's not you working that he says, it's God working. Even in those times you feel like you have no more energy, God is still at work in you. God is changing you. And that's not just a promise for you. It is a promise for your spouse. So here is the idea in Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, for we are God's masterpiece. God has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the things he planned for us long ago. You, here's who you are. You are God's masterpiece. He loves you. He's at work in you. It is amazing what God will do in and through your life. You are his masterpiece. Now, when you think of masterpiece, don't think of painting. Think of sculpture. And in order to create a masterpiece in sculpture, you have to have a chisel. You got to have files. You got to have sandpaper. And it hurts. To go through all the changes that have to be done in order for us to be the people that God has called us to be. You to be the, the wife, you to be the husband that God's called you to be. In order for you to go through, there's, there's chiseling and hammering. And it hurts. But you are a masterpiece and this is part of making your life what God's intended you to be. Allow yourself, get, get off your own case. Quit putting yourself down all the time. Allow yourself to be chiseled on and shaped. He is making a masterpiece out of your life.
and allow him to do that in your spouse. There's a third thing, stay in church. And you'd expect me to say it. After all, I'm a pastor, stay in church. But guess what? I'm not the only one saying it. There is a group of people from Harvard University and the University of Virginia who are saying it too. Why? It's called a, the Human Flourishing Project. I'd never heard of it before. Human Flourishing Project that was done between a cooperation, uh, Harvard University and the University of Virginia. And here's the idea. It was in 2017. It was a five-year study, and here was the idea. What causes human beings to flourish? Why do some human beings just disintegrate while others just are flourishing in their life. What causes that? What, what are the habits that they build? What are the decisions that they make? What are the attitudes? And they did a study on that was five years. Now, the study has moved into another phase and other universities are joining. And I, I think Baylor University has joined it. But what causes someone to live the greatest life? You know what they discovered? I love this part. This ought to be on every television program. Here is what they discovered. That those who attend church weekly live 10 to 15 years longer. I'm not making this up. I'm just reading what they concluded. Those who attend church weekly live 10 to 15 years longer. They have better health. They have better social relationships and better marriages. Those who attend church weekly have a 30 to 50% lower divorce rate than those who don't. Okay, stop for a moment. I've heard pastors from the platform make a statement, we Christians are just so bad because our divorce rate is the same 50% as the rest of those who don't know Christ. That's not a good study, and here's why. There's, there are people that call themselves Christians on a survey or whatever, and they've never been in church, don't go to church, don't know Jesus, don't give a, a, a hoot about God. There are people that are social Christians. They're, our family's Christian, yes, I'm a Christian. They don't know anything about God and they don't care. There are those kinds of people that call themselves Christians, but there are other people that call themselves Christians who love God, who walk with God, who read his word, who strive to obey him. That's a real Christian. So what happened in this study is that Harvard University, University of Virginia, is that they recognized that and they said, okay, what about those people that are serious about their faith? Oh, here's what we've discovered. They have a 50% better chance of success than the rest of the world. So what is the divorce rate of people who are really serious about God? It's about 25%. And success is 75%. Doesn't mean it's 100%, but it's 75%. I'm just saying when you are in church, you got a stronger chance of a strong marriage. And by the way, you're going to live longer. You're going to be healthier. You're going to be happier. And some of you are saying, oh, no, Mark, that's not what I want. I don't want to live longer. I want to die younger. I, I want to be unhealthy all the rest of my life. I want to be miserable. 
then don't go to church. But if you do go to church, the exact opposite is going to happen in your life. This is according to their study, not mine. And he, but it makes total sense. The more you're in the Word of God and obeying the Word of God and being around others who are doing the same, the more likely it is that you're going to be loving and forgiving and trusting and asking God, trusting God to help you and growing. All of these things. And you're not going to be doing other stuff that kills people. I'm just saying. You made a really good decision today to come to church. So here is the deal. Change your attitude. From negative to positive, start looking toward that stage of awakening. Start uh, uh, participating with God in your growth and maturity and stay in church with other people that have the same goals that you have. That's number one. I like number one. Number two is this, cultivate the habit of serving each other. Here's Philippians 2, verses 3 to 8. And I'm going to tell you, this passage is a fantastic passage on marriage, one of the best you can find in the Bible, simply because it is a fantastic passage on relationships of any kind. So listen to how it puts it. We could spend two, two or three weeks on this passage. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Get over yourself. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Put other people ahead of yourself. Look not every person just on his own things, but every person also on the things of others. Would you stop being so self-centered? Let this mind be in you. Do you know what the phrase actually means? Get a new attitude. Let this mind be in you is just simply talking about attitude and you control your attitude. And this is the mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Now we just took the Lord's Supper together that acted out what Jesus did. Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh, left glory. He left all of his power, all of his, of his honor and glory in heaven. He took on a human body, but it wasn't just that. He then took on a servant. An attitude of a servant. And here is what he's saying, and that's what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you to take on the attitude of a servant to your wife, to your husband, to your kids, to your parents, to your siblings. Now, in the Bible, it talks about that men are to be the head of their homes. And, and that chaffs some women because there are some men, honestly, who take that to mean I'm the ruler. I've had, especially early in my marriage, uh, my ministry, I had guys that I was their pastor and they'd come to me and they'd say, okay, well, let's explain this whole thing, head of the home. It means I make all the decisions, right? It, it means I rule the roost, Right? And I said, you don't, you're not getting it. That's not actually what he's saying. Oh, yeah, it is. 
No, it's not. And we went to the passage that really helps define it. Listen to what he, oh, by the way, the leader of a family that serves each other's a husband. That's the fill in the blank for you. I'm trying to get, I'm, so I'm talking to the guys here. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, listen to what he says. Jesus called his disciples together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, but it's not to be with you. So this, guys, listen, that's, he's saying, you think that the head of the family means they lord it over, that they, I get my way all the time. Though, he says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was saying that leader means chief servant. That's what it means, chief servant. So in other words, okay, what does it mean for me as a husband to be the head of our home? I set a tone. I have the responsibility to set a tone of serving each other in our home. I've had uh, men have come to me and said, look, my wife's in weekday Bible studies. She's got, she knows so much more of the Bible than I do. She's memorized so many more verses than I have. I can't be the spiritual head of my family because she just knows more. No, no, that, to be the spiritual head of your family simply means you set the tone of things that the Bible teaches us to do. Doesn't mean you know more of the Bible or memorize more of the Bible. It's just meant you set the tone of following the Bible in your home. And one of the ways in which you, you follow the Bible in your home is that you, you set the example of serving in your family. You know as well as I know that if everybody in your family is serving each other, you got a happy family. You know that. And you are the one, we are the one men who are to set a tone it's not I lay on the sofa while everybody else serves me or it's that I'm up off that sofa and I am taking care of others in my family. And the Bible says, if you give, it'll be given back to you. Don't worry, you're not, your needs are not gonna be unmet. God will make sure your needs are met, but what you've gotta do is concentrate on meeting others' needs. You give. I will tell you um, one thing that we've done right, Kathy and I have done right in our marriage is the serving each other. And we have from the beginning, we we've, are in such a habit of thinking of each other. Uh, we go to a store, what would Mark want? What would Mark need? What would Kathy need? Uh, can I go run some errands for you, Kathy, because you're already busy with some other things? This has been very much a part of who we are. And I'm going to just give you a recent example of it. Mondays are my hardest day other than Sunday, but Monday is like crazy hard for me as it turns out. But, but, but I, last Monday, I, I had 
about two or three hours worth of a project at home, at home that had to be done. And then after that, I had at least two more hours of ministry at home that I had to get done that day. And so I got home about five o'clock. It, it had been, you know, a full day. And then I went immediately to go get the job done that I had to get done. And when I walked in, it was already done. I'm telling you, I walked back in the house and I gave my wife a big hug. She had already done it for me. There was a few parts that needed my muscles that I put in place, but the rest of it, she had just... Look, we're empty nesters. We got time to do that. And it may be that you can't give that kind of time right now with all the other responsibilities, but there are some things you can do. Thinking of the other. Caring for the other. And when you build that relationship in your home, it will transform things. So the second thing I'm saying to you, learn how to serve each other. And guys, we have to set the tone. So turn the video games off and stuff and get after it. We set the tone in our family of serving each other. Here's the third thing. Make honoring each other a major priority in your family. Uh, Romans 12, verse 10. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Part of that means in public that we don't put our, our spouse down, that we don't criticize our spouse or make jokes about our spouse or that that's just, that's dishonoring. We, we honor, we build up our spouse in, in public with others. Now I've encountered some families that are in along the path that they have bantering, loving bantering, and they love it and they know exactly what all this is about. They always take it right. So you figure out your family. But the bottom line is that we build each other up in public. But now how do you build, we build each other up in private? Because it has to be in private as well. How do we do that? Well, Gary Chapman has uh, what is called the five love languages. And maybe you've heard of that. I, I think it's brilliant that each one of us have one or more things that speak love to us. Uh, for instance, for some, it's words of affirmation. Well, then that is your spouse. Then give words of affirmation. For others, it's quality time, going on walks together, just being with each other. Then give that, if that's the love language of your spouse. Receiving gifts. I personally love to receive gifts. Maybe that's your love language. Or whatever it is, do, do that with your spouse. Acts of service, physical touch, of holding hands, and of walking with holding the hand of your spouse or whatever hugging whatever whatever is the love language of your spouse in private speak that language with your spouse and what you're doing is honoring her honoring him in public, in private. Here's, here's the next one. Keep talking and listening to each other. Philippians 2, 2. Live together in harmony and love as though you had only one mind and one spirit between you. That word that is translated harmony is the same concept as the Greek word koinonia, which means we share life. 
And in order to share life, you got to have communication. And this is why Gary Smalley, the Christian uh, marriage speaker, says without exception in more than 20 years and from more than 300,000 people, the answer has come through loud and clear. We need better communication. I'm telling you why men and women struggle with communication with each other. Because we communicate differently. We're at different levels of communication. So let me give you an example. There was a study done on little girls between the ages of two and four. And the same study on the same number of little boys ages two to four. They were given a microphone. I mean, uh, 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 yeah. So that it picked up every noise that came from their mouths and recorded that. Every noise that came from their mouth. You know what they discovered? Little girls ages two and four, every noise that comes out of their mouth is some kind of a word. May be the wrong word, may not be pronounced right, but every, in ages two to four, is, are words that come out of little girls' mouths. Guess what they discovered about boys? They discovered that 60% of the noises that come out of little boys are words, and 40% are nothing. I mean, they're just making noise. Have you raised a boy? They just make noises. Doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but it does to them, and they enjoy hearing noise. But it's not words. It's just making noise. So guess what? By age four, girls are better communicators than boys because they've had more practice saying words. Now fast forward 40 years, and there's no difference. <laughs> there's no difference. Women are better communicators than men. There's, there's no secret to that. We all know it. And that's why he's never going to reach your level. He's never going to. Gary Smalley says there's five levels of communication. There's level one, cliches. Give me a high five. How you doing? Good to see you today. Cliches. Second level, we give facts. Here is information. I want to transfer information to you. Level three, here are my opinions. We state opinion. I'm going to give you all the opinions of everything that, that, that I'm talking about. Level four, how am I feeling? I feel hurt about such and such. I feel happy about such and such. Level five, we reveal our needs. And I need you to do this and that. And here's the truth. In studies, guys are really good at levels one to three. And girls, women, are really good at levels one to five. And for a guy to share feelings and needs, they can and they do on occasion, but they don't do it like women. And this is part of the gap that we're dealing with. So here's the deal. I, don't you remember Eric Wooten three weeks ago, Eric Wooten, the uh, Christian counselor, and he made a statement, there's gaps that we have in our personalities with each other. Don't expect to meet halfway. It's not going to happen. Learn how to take a step toward. 
Take a step toward each other, but don't expect to meet each other halfway. Well, interestingly, the next week we had Michael Jr. here, and on Saturday night he was talking about communication. He said the same thing. You're not going to ever meet halfway. In fact, it may not even be good to meet halfway. Take a step toward each other. Better understand what's going on in the other person. And I'm just saying... There's a difference in communication between a man and a woman, and men have got a long way to go. We've got a lot to learn, and I'm not saying shut it off and don't learn it. I'm saying more than likely, a man's not gonna meet you halfway. But men, we can take steps. We can take a step toward our spouse, and women, you can take a step to improve the communication. But here's the last one, and the one I wanna spend more time with. Come back to being God-directed. There's a passage of scripture God gave to me 25 years ago or so, 25 to 30 years ago, that honestly has rocked my world. Now, that's the whole chapter of Isaiah 30, the whole chapter. If you read Isaiah 30, you'll read it and say, well, it didn't apply to me. You know, you'll blow it off and go on. But if you would stop on Isaiah 30 and say, wait a minute, in its context, it doesn't apply to me. But in its meaning underneath, it does. In fact, it's profound. Isaiah chapter 30 is a profound chapter life-changing chapter. But in verse 15, here's what I want you to grab hold of. You can put this verse in con any context and it will feed you direction of what to do. So listen to what he says. Isaiah 30, verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest, meaning rest in God, is your salvation. Now the word salvation doesn't mean going to heaven. It means is your rescue. In repentance and resting in God is your rescue. In quietness and trust is your strength. You can apply this to anything, but now apply it to marriage. You're struggling in your marriage. You're struggling in your marriage. Now, the reason you're struggling is because both of you are doing some things wrong. The struggle is the indicator. We got, we got, we're either responding wrong to each other, doing things wrong. So how do we fix this? How do we rescue this? We come back to God. God, I'm going to own what I'm doing wrong. I'm going to ask your forgiveness. I'm going to be right with you. I want to get it right with you before I get it right with my wife. I'm going to get it right with you. And God, I have been trying to work out my marriage in the flesh. But I'm gonna start resting in you, that you will lead me in this marriage to make it better. And here's what he's saying. If you go to God and you'll repent of what you're doing wrong in the marriage, and you will say, I'm gonna stop trying to make my way happen, I'm gonna rest in you. It will rescue your marriage. That's the first thing he says. Here's the second part that he says. Now, if you will be quiet and trust, it will become your strength. Here we go. Wherever you are in your marriage, 
if there's something missing, come back to God through repentance. Second, rest in God for his power to restore your relationship and make it what it should be. Third, calm down, get quiet, stop defending yourself, stop complaining, stop overreacting, and stop forcing. Be quiet, he is saying. Then start trusting God to show you what to do and when to do it. You see, the whole idea of trusting is doing. It's acting on what God tells you. That's what trusting is. So listen to me. When I started learning this, and I was applying it in different areas, I also applied it to marriage. And I realized this is great wisdom. When I'm struggling, it's partly because of my sin. I got to go back to God, get repentance. I got to get lined up with God. And I've got to say, God, I want you to be in charge of this marriage, not me. Then I got to shut up. Got to stop complaining, stop griping, stop instructing, stop debating, stop arguing, stop complaining. I got to shut up. All these words are only doing us harm, not good. Then here's the next thing. I got to start trusting God, which means I got to start obeying what God tells me to do. And here's the idea. God loves your spouse more than you. You love your spouse. And what you got to do is go to God and say, God, what do you want to do to bless my spouse? And you can do it through me. Are you following me? God, you love my spouse even more than I do. And what, whatever you tell me to do to show your love to my spouse and to use me to do it, the answer is yes. And I'm telling you, when you open your heart to that, get ready. Because God will start showing you all the ways in which he wants to bless your spouse through you. And every single one of them, the answer is yes. And I will tell you this, guys, you will change the heart of your wife if you'll actually do what I'm saying. Now, I've had men come to me for marriage counseling, and I tell them all this, and most of them blow me off. Now, they don't do it in the room. They all tell me, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. And I already know they're not going to. I know before they leave the room who's going to do it and who's not. I can already tell. But I'm going to tell you something. The guys who have done it have changed their marriage. So listen, if you say to God, you love my wife even more than I do, and whatever you tell me to do, the answer is going to be yes. And then all these ideas are going to start popping into your head. And every one of them you do, wash her car and bring her flowers for no reason and do, go do stuff for her, whatever God shows you. Well, here's what's going to happen. You're speaking love to her. And you're going to change her heart. Now, wives, the same thing in reverse. And you're speaking love to him. 
You say, well, I can't do it now. You said it in front of my spouse. I mean, no, you do it now is even, even better because, hey, you actually listened. I'm telling you, you'll change your marriage if you'll start letting God love your spouse and use you to do it. Marriage is the greatest of the greatest. And that can be your marriage. Open up your heart and say, okay, God, I'm ready. And watch God change your home. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we say, God, I just, I want, I want this kind of life. I'm gonna ask you to change my attitude, change my laziness in, in my relationship, change my focus from me to, to my family and my wife and my husband. I'm asking you to change my heart. And whatever it means, I'm investing in the greatest of the greatest. And I want to. God, I ask that you would move in hearts today to say yes to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.